Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans 8, verses 28 to 34. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn within a large family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is, who is to condemn? It is Christ who died, or rather, who was raised, who is also at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good to see you. If I can find my notes, that will be helpful. Otherwise, we're all in trouble. Well, good to see you. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I stumbled upon a story about Rowan Williams, who was the uh, former archbishop of uh, the Anglican Church. And it was actually a story about a six-year-old Scottish girl who wrote the following letter to God. To God, how did you get invented? As the story goes, the, the girl's father, who was not a believer, sent this letter to various church leaders hoping to receive some assistance in answering his six-year-old's question. From the Scottish Episcopal Church, they received no reply. From the Presbyterian Church, no reply. From the Scottish Catholic Church, they received a theologically complex reply. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, though, replied like this. I want to read through his response, this letter he wrote to this girl. Dear Lulu, nobody invented me, but lots of people discovered me and were quite surprised. They discovered me when they looked round at the world and thought it was really beautiful or really mysterious and wondered where it came from. They discovered me when they were very, very quiet on their own and felt a sort of peace and love they hadn't expected. Then they invented ideas about me, some of them sensible and some of them not very sensible. From time to time, I sent them some hints, especially in the life of Jesus, to help them get close to what I'm really like. But there was nothing and nobody around before me to invent me. Rather, like someone who writes a story in a book, I started making up the story of the world and eventually invented human beings like you who could ask me awkward questions. He then concluded the letter with a little personal touch by assuring the girl, and then he'd send you lots of love and sign off. I know he doesn't usually write letters, so I have to do the best I can on his behalf. Lots of love from me, too. A wonderful display, and you might quibble with some of his response, but I think a wonderful display of serious engagement with a child's question. A question that might have been ignored as it was by various leaders, maybe ignored because of what seems really simple is actually quite complex and ignored because of the difficulty in offering a meaningful answer or, 
or ignored because it does seem silly, and it's coming from a child, and deep spiritual questions can wait until you grow and can actually have complicated discussions with some nuance, or, or it could have been as it was, answered with technical precision in an inaccessible way, maybe to avoid further questioning. Maybe you've been guilty of responding to a child's question in that way. I was, at, I was actually tempted to do that this morning with our eight-year-old who was asking me questions about the Eucharist. And I was busy and um, wanted to just get as precise as possible to maybe shut the questioning down. And immediately I, I thought of what I'm talking about today. Williams, though, demonstrates an alternative approach. He takes the question very seriously, recognizes the spiritual nature of this young child, and meets her where she is. I want to continue the conversation today that we started a couple of weeks ago. Um, as we looked at the concluding warnings from Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus juxtaposes rock and sand as foundations for, for structures to highlight two very different approaches to building our lives, approaches that yield very different results. A wise person, as it, the, the story goes, builds on a rock which prevents the structure from collapsing in a storm. And Jesus says, the wise person builds like that. If you hear my words and do them, you are wise like this individual who builds on rock. However, if you don't hear my words and you don't do them, you are like a foolish person who builds on sand, thinking, yeah, this looks fine. It's good enough for who it's for. We'll go ahead and build a structure here. Well, eventually, when the rains, winds, and flood arrive, the house is left in shambles. The point that the foundations that we build our lives on actually matter. They, they may not matter all that much to us today, but eventually when the storm arrives, the foundation becomes very important. I want to continue thinking about this image, but narrowing the focus a little bit to consider why foundation building also gives shape to our discipling efforts with children. In ministry to kids, the goal is not to just convince kids to have the right beliefs. The goal is not to convince kids to say a prayer. The goal is that we might nurture faith and trust and a loving relational connection with God that will be a solid foundation the rest of their lives. And I think the reason this is so important, that this is the goal in discipleship efforts with children, if we return to that image Jesus uses, the rock and the sand, Jesus doesn't promise insulation from storms. He promises protection through them. Storms will come, and the reality is storms will come for children as well. So we hope to build a foundation so that when children suffer, which we don't like to think about, but they will. And when children experience doubt, which they will, and when they feel disoriented, and they will, in all of that, our prayer is that a foundation of loving trust in Jesus might uphold them. 
So let's get into our gospel reading for today. With that being said, we'll turn our attention to Matthew chapter 19, a well-known section. We'll read just a few verses, beginning in verse 13. Then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Simple story, but a profound truth. Jesus recognizes and affirms the value of children in no uncertain terms. Not only, though, does he speak to their inherent value, but also to their important place in this upside-down kingdom he is bringing. Let them come to me. Do not hinder them. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. It's a radical suggestion. The kingdom of heaven belongs to these little ones who ask questions like, Dear God, how did you get invented? Jesus here reinforces what he has said elsewhere, especially in the previous chapter in Matthew's gospel. At the beginning of Matthew 18, the disciples ask Jesus directly, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You probably remember that story, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He welcomes a child, puts the child in their midst, and then says this, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like Children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Shockingly, in talking about greatness in his kingdom, he sets before the people not a hero who is physically intellectually or socially powerful, not a politician, not a military leader or a religious leader or someone with enormous amounts of wealth. Rather, a powerless child is set before them as a model. A shocking display. Not shocking because children were universally hated in the first century world. They, they weren't universally hated, especially in Jewish culture. New Testament scholar Craig Keener notes that while Greek and Roman fathers in this time period may have been much less likely to attach to infants, probably due to the high infant mortality rate, and while it wasn't uncommon even for many to discard of unwanted infants, Keener reminds us that Jewish culture was not so callous toward infants or children in general. In fact, deep affection was often expressed for children. Oppressing children was prohibited on religious grounds. So children weren't universally hated in the first century Jewish world. However, they did occupy a very specific position within the social hierarchy. And that position was at the bottom. They were subservient, to be obedient. They were to know their place, and that place was very low. They were among the most powerless socially, and thus, when it comes to important issues, maybe important issues of religious devotion or instruction, 
Maybe the tendency was that they were sort of an afterthought. Seems to be the context for what we read in this story in Matthew's gospel. Presumably, parents are bringing children to this miracle-working, wise teacher for a blessing. And his disciples, moving to protect him, assume, well, these little ones don't deserve Jesus' attention. These are weighty, important spiritual matters, and that's not their concern, at least not yet. They will eventually develop some spiritual sensitivities and can have some conversations like this, but right now this is a distraction. This is a nuisance. This is important business for adults, and it needs to remain among adults, but Jesus, as he has before, affirms not only their value, but says, let them come to me. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. God's kingdom, we are reminded, belongs to the most vulnerable, powerless, inconsequential. As Jesus said in the sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, though our context is a bit different, I think recognizing the spiritual capacity of children is still a fairly radical thought. The idea that children are spiritual people, even now. It's not something that when they reach adulthood, they become spiritual people with spiritual sensitivities. They are spiritual people now. I think recognizing that spiritual capacity is not the most common assumption we function under. The idea that their vulnerability as children, and, and even their, to be honest, their ignorance in various matters, that that doesn't negate a spiritual sensitivity or attunement. In fact, according to Jesus, the exact opposite might be true. These are, are the people who get the kingdom at a deeper level. So my question, a question that I have to take seriously, is with all of our progress, do we take this teaching from Jesus seriously? You probably know or are familiar with the old saying, children are to be seen and not heard. And I get that it's often said in jest. Sometimes it's probably not said in jest. But I, I think, as followers of Jesus, we should eradicate that thinking from our mental patterns and habits of speech lest an undercurrent of disdain begin to shape the way we perceive and interact with children. How often are children in our cultural climate seen as a nuisance that get in the way maybe of my ambition? I mean, how in the world can I live a fulfilled life if I have to put a career on hold or, or at least scale it back a bit? How can I achieve my financial goals when I have all these little people burning through all of my cash for frivolous things? Not that that's autobiographical, but you can imagine. This thinking, regardless of how accepted or normal it becomes culturally, must be resisted by those who follow Jesus, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. So I think we notice a couple of things as Jesus here in this story welcomes, embraces, addresses directly, and blesses children. 
First, a pretty low bar. He doesn't despise them. He doesn't hate them. The disciples want to protect him from them, thinking they are a nuisance, but he says, I, I don't need your protection. They're not a bother. The kingdom belongs to them. They are actually integral to the kingdom I bring. So Jesus doesn't show disdain for children, but an even higher bar, he also doesn't treat them with indifference. Well, they're just kids. They haven't developed those spiritual sensibilities yet. They will eventually, but today is not that day. They're just sort of there in the background, especially when it comes to spiritual conversations. We can tolerate them, uh, but until they're fully developed, we'll, we'll just keep those conversations for later. Not, that's not how Jesus approaches it at all. There, there's a remarkable section in, um, from, from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, where he talks about the incredible potential in every human being, particularly in light of the glory that awaits in the age to come. But, but he says it, it is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. Is it, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. He goes on to say this, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. There are no ordinary people. He wasn't speaking explicitly, certainly not exclusively about children, but I think there's something important here for our conversation as we think about the discipleship of children. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. I would submit, likewise, you have never talked to just a kid. And I understand that not everybody in this room is a parent or grandparent or aunt or uncle. But even if you're not connected relationally to children in that way, we are a part of a congregation with a lot of little ones running around. Each encounter we have, however brief, maybe nothing more than a greeting, each moment is an opportunity, not just among adults, for us to take one another seriously, but for us to take our children and their spiritual lives seriously. And Lewis is, is quick to note that that doesn't mean that we always deal with one another in a solemn manner. There's plenty of room and space for merriment and play, but even in merriment and play, we take the spiritual lives, the spiritual capacity of our children very seriously. This is why the, the kids' leadership team has structured their time for kids' church the way they have. For a half hour every Sunday, our hope is to not only instruct, but also instill habits and ways of perceiving and relating to God that build a foundation that might last a lifetime. As we read in Psalm 119, we want to help children hide God's word in their hearts, not just for the sake of biblical literacy, although I think that's really important, but also for the sake of encountering Jesus Christ. Children are spiritual beings who have serious questions. They may be cloaked in silliness, but serious questions. They are discovering and learning, and I personally believe they encounter Jesus Christ even from a young age. So how we, as a 
community of faith. Engage in that process of development is helping build a foundation. As such, it is holy work. So I want to take a moment to, to first of all, express my and our deep gratitude for the leadership team who faithfully serves our kids, instilling foundational faith practices and seeking to help equip families as they engage in faithful discipleship in their homes. I, I would be remiss not to highlight the leadership team who serves tirelessly, not just on Sundays, but throughout the year with late night meetings and late night phone calls to navigate questions or, or talk through thoughts on how best to lead that ministry. There is a lot of energy and effort. And I know Ashley and Eli Barb are actually back with kids today as well as Nanette, but Becca Stingle and Kate, I guess Kate is also back with, so they're all back with kids except for Becca Stingle. They work tirelessly to care for and to help us as a congregation take the spiritual development of our children seriously. And it is holy work. Um, I, I also want to um, recognize the huge team of volunteers. If you help with Solid Rock Kids, if you just want to raise your hand, not, not for social pressure, but just so that, that we see how many folks are involved in that. There, there are a lot of people week in and week out who are serving and loving these little ones, pouring into their lives. In that, that section in C.S. Lewis' work, he, he refers to uh, human individuals as um, everlasting splendors. And, and I think not just children, he's talking about all human beings, but, but I think if we could see our children in that light as everlasting splendors. Think of the immeasurable value each child represents, the limitless potential, tremendous opportunity that we have as individuals and as a congregation to help introduce them to Jesus Christ, the God we love and serve. So thank you to our current Solid Rock Kids volunteer, volunteers. I, I hope you know how important you are to the congregation and that the work you do is not wasted. Um, I, I know that it probably can feel very monotonous and tiring, and a lot of times you would much rather be sitting in here during the service. Um, I get that it can be loud, although hopefully less loud now that we have sound treatment installed in that room. But the work you do is not wasted. It is bearing fruit. And I know that because I see the fruit that it's bearing in my kids' lives. Um, and so personally even, thank you for pouring into uh, my kids' lives. It is appreciated, and I know that sentiment is shared by many parents and grandparents and family members in this room. It is holy work, and I commend you for that. And so finally, as you probably expected this was coming, I can't allow the moment to pass without giving a plug for those who might be interested in serving the community in this way. And actually, maybe even those who aren't currently interested in serving the community in this way. I would encourage you to open your hearts 
to the possibility that perhaps this is a holy work that God would lead you into for the sake of the children served, but I think also for the sake of your spiritual health. I think it would be a grave mistake for us to assume that we are always the only ones pouring in and imparting wisdom to children. We too are shaped and formed as we engage with these little ones. I've shared this before, but Rich Velotis once said that we aren't doing a local church a favor by volunteering in kids' ministry. The kids' ministry is doing us a favor because kids are a source of joy that God uses to form our hearts. It's not just the work that we are doing to shape, but we are being shaped as we serve. You know, one reason this is such important work and and why what takes place in that room next door is not, in my opinion, less important at all than what is going on in here today. Why, why there's so much energy and effort put into that instruction and care, why we don't just view it as a half an hour of child care or babysitting so that parents can, take part, can partake in the real stuff. One reason it's so important is that when it comes to building a foundation, going back to that image we started with, an early start is really important. If we think about the construction of a building, if there is an error in the foundation or if corners are cut, the end result can be fairly devastating. Um, addressing issues, structural issues, foundational issues down the road, it's not impossible. It can be done but it is much more expensive, it's much more labor intensive than taking care of it from the start. Likewise, when it comes to building a, a spiritual foundation, um, it is much easier to do that from the beginning than to have to tear down a lot of unhealthy structures that have been built. This is not to suggest that we can guarantee results. Um, that if we follow a specific program or a specific model, that, that we can ensure with certainty that children will not walk away from the faith. That always remains a possibility for every child. However, as the, the well-known proverb says, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Again, that's not a money-back guarantee. It's not an absolute. If you've lived more than five minutes, you know that it's much more complex than that. Two children can be raised in the exact same environment, same habits instilled in them, and they can choose very different paths. One might choose to reject the faith that they've been handed. One might choose to embrace the faith they've been handed. We cannot control the outcome, and we don't seek to control that outcome. However, there is truth to be found in that general principle that the likelihood that faith will persist long-term into adulthood certainly increases when a solid foundation has been laid because ideas that are planted early are difficult to root out. Perceptions that we develop about God from a young age are difficult for us to adjust in adulthood. Those who are adults probably know that to be true. It's difficult to adjust how we understood God from our earliest years. Now, that doesn't mean that our view of discipling kids is reduced to indoctrination 
certainly not manipulation to try to pry a profession of belief out of their mouths. In fact, Jesus offers a strong warning for those who would cause a child to stumble. And there are a lot of ways. It's difficult for me as a father to read that section because there are a lot of ways to make children stumble. Certainly abuse or manipulation or domination. The question that that I have to wrestle with, though, is it also possible that our temptation to be indifferent to the spiritual nature of our children, that our apathy about the spiritual lives of our children might also cause them to stumble. In her book, uh, Spiritual Conversations with Children, Lacey Finn Borgo wrote this, that a child's picture of God is formed in the beginning by the most powerful adults in their lives. And not, not powerful in, in terms of dominating, but the most important, the most influential adults in their lives are helping shape their picture of God. Whether we recognize it or not, our lives are shaping how our children perceive God. And ideas about God that are planted early are difficult to root out later in life. So we have a responsibility, as certainly as family members, as moms or dads or guardians or grandmas or grandpas or aunts or uncles, siblings, but also as members of a faith community, we have a responsibility to be open to children to encourage their sense of wonder, to encourage their openness to God. Often they are far more open to God's presence and God's activity than than we are as adults. We have a responsibility to take their questions seriously. And when you're in a rush preparing the Eucharist and your eight-year-old asks you a question that you do not have the slightest clue how to answer, we don't just ignore it, we engage with it. Maybe even admitting, I don't know, but let's talk about it. This is a process that will, in all likelihood, take years. We'll return to this conversation, I'm sure, time after time after time, but we cannot give in to the temptation to ignore, to shut down, say, well, that can wait until you grow and develop and, and gain some, some spiritual insight. Our children are spiritual beings. And how we handle questions, if they see that we don't take the faith that we're a part of seriously, that is going to be very difficult in adulthood for them to choose to take the Christian faith seriously. We are modeling in our instruction, but also in how we carry ourselves how we live faithfully as God's people, how we understand and perceive the God we serve. So I invite you to accept this challenge. It's a challenge that I have been invited to accept and wrestle with. And I invite you to join me in that process, to take seriously the spiritual lives of our children, understanding that every moment is an opportunity to impact how they understand their lives as participants in God's kingdom and how they understand the God we serve. Would you stand with me as we prepare to celebrate around the table of our Lord? Wendy, I'll invite you to join me. I'm going to say a prayer by way of invitation. Um, 
We're going to make two lines as we do each week down these center aisles. You can come to the front. When you arrive at the front, the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take uh, the bread and the cup on your own and return to your seat. Um, if you're in need of prayer, again, we invite you. Find somebody at the front or in the back. We'd love to pray for you. If you have a need, um, we'd love to help share that burden. Let's pray as we prepare to celebrate around our Lord's table. Lord Jesus, help us to take your word seriously. We invite you into this moment to stir our hearts and our minds. Merciful God, sanctify and empower this congregation by your abiding presence. Bless those who are, some even in this moment, those who are ministering in holy things to your children. Enlighten the minds and open the hearts of the littlest among us to experience and know your love, expressed most fully in your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would give patience, grace, wisdom, and steadfastness to those tasked with raising children in homes and those who serve here on a weekly basis in this place to help build a firm foundation in the lives of our children. We pray that you would work in our hearts to see the holiness and importance of this work and to be willing to answer your call. As we gather around this, your table, to receive your life poured out for us, may we be willing to pour ourselves out for the sake of others. We pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?